I always marvel at the providence of God and his foreknowledge and as he looks across the landscape of, of, of our church, uh, Grace Community Church. Even the timeliness of this series of messages, uh, familyhood, and even the timeliness of this message in light of um, what's happening in our world and what our Supreme Court justices ruled this week, I love how God allows us to speak into that. And even in this case, not even have to move away from what we had already planned. It's a reminder that he loves his church. It's a reminder that he cares uh, a lot about you and about me and about us. And, and so today, we're going to look at the role of a husband in a marriage. And the truth of the matter is this marriage, this message is for singles and and for wives, and for Christ followers. And so this message today basically is, I believe, the primary role of a husband is to prepare your wife and your family for eternity. Preparing them for eternity. But before we go there, I think we should pull away and address a a real issue in our world and kill the elephant in the room in light of what our Supreme Justice has just ruled. As a shepherd to you, I feel responsibility to share with you what I believe God's Word says, what we believe as a leadership team at Grace Community, and what we will do our best to do to live out. And so in light of what is marriage, let me just begin there. And I would say this, everything that we believe here at Grace, everything that I believe comes from the Word of God. And here's what we know to be true. We believe that the Word of God is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, Every word, every paragraph, every sentence, every chapter, every book, all 66 books of the Bible are the living, inspired word of God. And let me just say why I say that. Because I believe that the truths in God's word are timeless. I believe when they were written from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, that the principles and application of God's word is just as relevant and applicable today as it was in the day in which they were written. And so today, I'd like to say that I, would, I believe also, and you know this to be true, but for the record, we don't believe that certain portions of God's word are a myth or a fable or a good story. We believe they are the literal words of God, all 66 books. So everything that I'm about to say comes from this foundation where we believe is truth. God's word is eternal law, which is truth. And so I always encourage you to test what I say by God's word. What does God's word say? So let me just begin by just a very basic principle of what we believe to be true about marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam was created. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam was created, that God could not find a suitable helper for him. And so the text says that God created woman from Adam's rib. So he tried to find him a suitable helper. He didn't bring him an animal that Adam had named. There weren't, he didn't say, this will be your suitable helper. He didn't bring him multiple women and say, these will be your suitable helpers. He didn't bring Adam, a man, to be his suitable helper. It says in the word of God that God created woman, and out of 
Adam's rib, this woman became his suitable helper. And then it says in Genesis chapter 2 that the two became one. Together they were man and wife and had no shame or sin in their union with each other. Jesus, when he came in flesh and blood, as we would call a theological term, the incarnate Jesus, he incarnated himself, and he walked on earth for around 33 years. When Jesus came in flesh and blood and came to earth, he began to speak regarding marriage too. And so Jesus affirmed what was written in Genesis chapter 2 by saying this. Listen to this. In Genesis chapter or from Genesis chapter 2, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4, he says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God had joined together, let no man separate. So we see from Scripture that God's foundational understanding and intent for marriage is one man, one woman, suitable helper found, becoming one in union. And then Paul, Paul said this, hear me out. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 5. He went on to say this. He says that it's a divine metaphor. The church and the, is the bride of Christ. He said this mysterious union, the metaphor is in the same way that the church is the bride to Christ, in the same way we have this illustration that the marriage is a mysterious union between man and woman. Our church believes that The intent, the desire, and the truth of God's word is a marriage that's centered upon God is one man and one woman coming together and becoming one. Though we strive in this world to live at peace with all people, let me just say this. It's not a fashionable or even a a, a view that... Everyone agrees upon. We know that to be true. But here's what I know to be true. We can't move away from what the word of God says. If we've moved one inch, we have added or taken away from what God's original intent was for marriage. Even to the point that though we strive to live under government rule, and though we are ask in Romans chapter 13 to obey our government leaders and our authorities in place. We also know from Acts chapter 2 in verses 14 or 18 to 22, when Peter and John were just finishing up bringing healing to a man, the authorities, the government of that day, wanted them to denounce, wanted them to stop doing that. But in Acts chapter 4, just, just listen to this. You don't need to, to turn there. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John had just finished up this care for this man, and the authorities, the, the, the government of the day didn't like it. This is what John and Peter said. Then they called to them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you, the government, 
or to him, our God. You be the judges. As for us, Peter and John, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Pull away and tell you what that means to me. That means this. I might be persecuted for the view that I take on marriage. But here's what I know. I answer to God. And if any point or fashion I pull away from what God's word says, then I have sinned. And I answer to God. So, let me just say, okay, knowing that to be true, what should be our response to this ruling made in the Supreme Court justice offices? Let me give you some very practical illustrations and some very practical ways to live this out. I don't think we should be alarmed by what took place. God is in complete control. It's not as if God woke up and said, I'm surprised by this ruling. Why would we ever expect anything less from people who don't follow God? I would also say this, please, prayerfully, prayerfully, prayerfully consider any response you have before you make it. Ask the Holy Spirit how you should respond. Always season it with grace and truth and love. Remember, God has instructed us in his word in Jesus too, that we're supposed to love one another like Jesus loved one another. It doesn't diminish our love for people who view what we view differently. Also, I would say this, less is more. So when you do respond, remember, everything you say can be used for or against you. I would also say this. This is your chance to stand for what you believe and to stand firm in your faith, guided by the Holy Spirit. More than ever, we need Christ followers who stand in grace and truth for what we know to be true and live out their faith in a way that's seasoned with love and grace. I also believe this with all of my heart, that light shines best in darkness. So always look for opportunities in cases like this to point people to Jesus Christ. Let me wrap up this short introduction by saying this. All sexual sin is sin when it's outside of marriage. No matter if it's heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. This is just another way the enemy wants to twist the truth about something that was supposed to be the beautiful consummation of the union and mystery of a man and woman having covenant together under God and with God saying, we are one. So my hope is this today, that as you engage people and as you encounter them, that you think before you speak that you show unconditional love and grace. And more than anything, I believe with all of my heart, more than any time that you and I have been alive, this is our chance to show the world what a Christ-centered marriage looks like and how beautiful that union can be when a man and a woman Together, chase after God and the glorious image that's the metaphor in Scripture of the bride of Christ and Christ himself 
comes together and lives out what Christ intended us to do. I personally find this more than ever. This is Ann and I's opportunity. This is you and your spouse's opportunity to say, you know what? This is what God intended us to do in our marriage. And this is the hope of glory being lived out. And for the world to say, that's what I want. That's the way it should be. That is what God intended. So don't be reactive to things like this. Be proactive about it. Grab your Bibles. And we're going to look at what it means for a man to prepare his wife, a husband to prepare his wife for eternity. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will put one in your hand. But turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 21 to 33. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's see what the role of a husband is and what his responsibility is to his wife and to his family. Stand with me and we'll read it together. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Read it with me. Ready? Read. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You may have a seat. I want you to look at one passage, one verse that I want to bring out of the text today. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. Husbands, love your wives, it says in 25. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to what? What's the P word? Present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I would go so far as to say this. I long to see my wife set up for the future. Yet it's more than a financial security. It should be an eternal security. I long to see Anne as my wife standing before God, prepared, ready to be presented to God himself in a way in which he looks at her and says, well, The greatest thing a husband can do for his wife is to prepare her for heaven. Whether you knew this or not, and majority of you know this, it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 that we all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Everyone that's a follower of Jesus will stand at what we call the judgment seat. It's the Greek word bimatos. It's where we get the word bima seat. We will stand before God, every one of us that's a Christ follower, and we will go before him and he will look at our lives and he will examine the way we lived on earth. And this passage says in Ephesians that we are to get our wives ready for that moment. We are to prepare them to stand before Jesus, holy, blameless, and radiant, The primary role of a husband is to get his wife ready to be presented for God. So just picture if you can. Right now, you are daily trying to prepare your wife for that moment when she stands before God and you say, God, here's what I want to present to you as a husband. I want to present you my wife. And we're supposed to get her ready to be blameless and holy, washed by the Holy Spirit and God's word, so that when she stands before God, she is a radiant bride because you have cared for her, you have ministered to her, you have loved on her, you have guided her, you have instructed her, you have led by example so that she can hear the words, well done. However... Way too many marriages spend all of their years preparing for the last 10 years of their lives instead of the million years after that. How many marriages plan, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to have this investment. And day after day, you're preparing for the last 10 years when it's an empty nest and the children are gone. You're preparing that somehow she'll be set up and she'll be able to make it. And somehow she'll have everything she needs and then you'll have everything you need. And so you work, 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 work and, and, you, and, you, and you invest, invest, invest. And the word of God says, why are we spending so much time preparing for 10 years instead of the million of years to come? You see, we save and we save and we work and we work and we broker deals. We fret over the stock market. We get into disagreements over, with siblings over inheritance and antiques and paintings and pictures and silver. All the while, we're living as though there won't be a day when we stand before the living God and he asks us, how did you live for me? Because I love Ann with all of my heart, I long to have a a great life, but I long even more for her to have a great eternity. You see, if we get this one down, it shapes everything we do as husbands. It redefines why we do what we do. Listen, men, what an opportunity. We have so many presentations that we have at work. You had presentations that you had at school. You're presenting all these things for people to buy. This is our chance to have our bride stand before the living God and to have them say, from here from God, well done. It would break my heart heart if my wife stands before God and she doesn't hear that in a bold way and she wonders why didn't Jim set me up and pour into me and have me prepared as a radiant bride I long for her to stand at the bema seat and gasp a breath of appreciation for the way I led our family to stay on mission 
and to remember that it matters how we live for Jesus. I long for her not to have any regrets for the way I'd led my kids and led our family and led our marriage. It would break my heart to not get her ready for Jesus. That's what Ephesians 5 says. We're supposed to prepare them so when they stand before God, they are a radiant bride, holy and blameless. I long for her to hear the words, well done. I long for Josh, Hannah, and Isaiah to hear, well done. That's my responsibility. It's to help them to fall in love with Jesus Christ. It's to help them to chase after Jesus Christ. It's to help them to be the best Christ follower that the world has ever seen. So that they stand before the living God. He looks at them and says, well done. And they say, thank you, dad. Thank you, husband. Have you considered what it would be like to stand before the living God? Isaiah said, woe is me. John fell on his face. Moses couldn't look at him. Have you considered what it's going to be like to look before and stand before the living God of the universe? When you start to consider what that encounter is going to be like, you live differently. All of a sudden, the choices you make in your marriage are not self-centered. Way too many marriages have couples asking what is best for them instead of what would God want us to do? Way too many marriages have self-serving interests and husbands and wives who have lost the eternal lenses that all there is is this life when God is saying eternal mindedness keeps us from silly arguments. Think about that for a second. There isn't time to fight or argue over, why didn't you do that for me? Why didn't you buy that? I don't like that. How come we don't have countertops that are this way and that way and cupboards that are that color? How come I don't own this or own that? How come I'm not on that team? How come, how come, when we lose sight of this temporary thing called earth and we focus our lenses on heaven and we get prepared for that encounter with Jesus, it changes everything. And that's our responsibility as husbands, to get our wives ready to be presented before God. We have marriage books that you can buy anywhere. Ten steps to a happier marriage. You know what we do? We buy them, and we devour them, and we read them, and we say, I'm going to practice this. I'm going to do that. And we have all these books that want behavior modification when we need heart change. And listen to me, a happier marriage isn't necessary, a godly marriage. We need to have marriages that are chasing after Jesus. Ten steps to keep Jesus at the center and how to make your marriage earth, instead of earthly minded, eternally minded. So how to have a marriage that allows your wife to stand before the living God and for him to say, well done. That's the kind of husbands we need in our world. But way too many marriages or high-maintenance people trying to get temporary happiness. When is the last time you sat with your wife or children, or even as a single person or single mom, and evaluated what kind of treasures you're storing up in heaven? When is the last time you were concerned not over your, your investments in the stock market, but your treasures that are in heaven? When was the last time you were disturbed that you're not on mission? When is the last time you lost sleep, not because of Dow Jones, but because of the treasures in heaven? Isn't that why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth? You see, we will be given rewards 
according to the way we've lived on earth. We'll have a chance to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. However, the opposite could be true too. Either way, we gain or lose a reward. Listen to me, husbands, dads. Our responsibility is to lead well. Our responsibility is to make our house a house of God. Our responsibility is to have a heavenly lens instead of an earthly lens. We are ready to present our brides to the living God of the universe. What an incredible privilege that should be for us. He's given us a chance to take this precious woman that he's created from the foundation of the world, and he says, I want you to help her to become a fearless, courageous, brave woman of God. And the same for your kids. The Bible is clear in Matthew 25 that we will be rewarded. The Bible is clear that there will be different privileges, power, and authority in heaven. Don't you dare think that somehow that God never rewards obedience. You can look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. He, look at the person had five, look at the person had two, and look at the person had one. The way they took the talent and used it, God rewarded them. And I believe when we get to heaven that many of us will have different privileges. Many of us have different authority. Many of us will, will, will be given a, a part of heaven that others won't. Well, it's all good. But the reason we do that is for us to say, God, I lived for you, and I want to set my wife up to win in heaven, and I want to set my wife up and my children to hear the words, well done from the God of the universe in heaven. That's our responsibility. Heaven offers more than comfort. It offers compensation. The Bible is clear at the Bimatah seat that you and I will be rewarded crowns. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, turn there quickly, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, here's a few crowns that we can work towards, not for our self-interest, but not and to bring glory to ourselves, because in Revelation 4, 10, it says, we'll in turn place them at his feet. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, look what it says in verse 24, it says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last on earth. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever, the incorruptible crown. And so he says, therefore, I do not run like a someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a, body, a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. It's this picture of this personal mission who understands discipline, strict discipline. It's this person who wakes up every day and is working towards that bimatas moment when he's standing before God. He's in God's word. He's sharing his faith. He's praying for his family. He's loving his wife. He's tenderly leading her. He's asking the question uh, 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 the, about theology, about God's word. He's shepherding. He's guiding. It's this person that wakes up and every single day he is intentionally on mission. One of the very things I love about the men's ministry of Fight Club, it forces men to be strict disciplinarians in their walks with God. And so he's saying, doesn't a runner run in such a way? Doesn't he exercise? Doesn't he have a goal? Doesn't he prepare himself for the race? And God is saying, those of you who are disciplined in your walks will receive an incorruptible crown. I long for my kids to receive and my wife to receive this crown. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 is another crown that will be given. Revelation chapter 2, look how else we can prepare our wives for that moment. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 says this, do not be afraid. 
of what you're about to suffer, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown, the crown of life. It's this willingness to look at your kids and say, listen, children, listen, honey, listen to me. It is worth, as Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain. It is worth to be persecuted. It is worth to stand up for what God says about marriage. It is worth to stand at the marketplace and say, we, you need Jesus. It is worth it because the word of God says to live as Christ and to die is gain. Are you preparing your kids for that kind of encounter? Or you live in a fearful life and you're on the fringes. When's the last time you stepped out in faith as a husband and said, I'm scared to death, but I know God's got my back. And I want my family to see that I will look death in its face and so be it because I want them to know it is worth it. When's the last time you bravely went to someone and just shared boldly about Jesus Christ? I mean, doesn't the word of God say that in Matthew 8, 28, 18 to 20, that, that we should go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to deserve all things. And then it says in verse 20, and lo, I am with you always. Listen, if you think you don't have what it takes, remember, God's not leaving you. He's with you when you're evangelizing. Doesn't it say in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that, that power will be given to you when you become witnesses in, in Judea and Samaria? When you share your faith, power from the Holy Spirit comes to you. The reason you don't share your faith is because you don't believe God is with you. See, your kids need to see you out in front, loving, leading, sharing, bringing them in to that moment, praying for lost people. And your wife needs that too, because when they do, they receive the victor's crown. First Peter five. Look at First Peter five. Look at look at verses two to four. First Peter five verses two to four. There's the crown of glory that's given. First Peter five verses two and four. Look what it says. Two and First Peter five, verses two to four. It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Not because you get paid, but you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the crown of what? What's it say? Glory that will never fade away. It's this picture of a shepherd's crown. It's someone who's teaching God's word and saying, you know what, I want to be the shepherd. It's a father shepherding over his family and his wife and saying, hey, let's spend time in God's word. Hey, let's talk about God. Hey, let's pray together as a family. It's him looking at his wife and instructing her. It's him leading a small group. It's him teaching and sharing that there's this shepherd's crown that's available. Then there's the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. You can look there later. It's for those people who literally look forward to the imminent return of Jesus Christ and have lived a very righteous life. There's a crown that your wife and your kids and you can receive. It's just basically, and you know why you look forward to the imminent imminent return of Jesus Christ? It's because you've got your lenses on heaven. 
And you know there's going to be a day, even though I'm suffering here, even though this is difficult, you can look at your kids and say, you know what? It is hard. It's challenging to be a Christ follower. It is hard to say no whenever all your friends are doing that. It is difficult, honey, not to own that, to give, to build a well in Africa. It is hard not to have the house that we want, whatever it is. It is hard, honey. But listen, it is worth it because Jesus is taking me home one day. That's what that means. How often do you wake up and you're looking forward to the imminent term of Christ? Or how about you wake up and say, I can't wait till, till I go and buy that. Listen, we got a day, Christ's going to rapture the church. Or when you die, you're going to meet him. And we are going to spend eternity with Christ, the King of Kings. Now that should get you out of bed in the morning. When's the last time you talk with your kids and say, guess what? There's coming a day. Guess what, baby? It's hard, and I don't know how we're going to pay for that bill, but God promised to supply our needs, and it's difficult. My family life was hard, but listen, this is only temporary. I'm going to spend, and we're going to spend eternity, so let's focus our eyes on heaven. When's the last time you did that as a dad or a husband? That's our role. That's our responsibility. Point them towards the intimate return of Jesus Christ. Then there's the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2. 19 to 20, it goes to the person who leads people to Christ. Paul says in this text there, you'll see, and they're describing, he's saying, is it not you? Like, here it is. Here's the person. There's this this crown that's available to those that, that lead people to Christ, that have a burden for lost people. Let me ask you, husbands, who is the last person, your kids or your wife, saw you sharing the gospel with? When is the last time you gathered your family on their knees and say, we need to pray for my boss. He doesn't know Jesus. We need to pray for my dad. We need to pray for your uncle. We need to pray for your aunt. When is the last time you vocalized those words? When is the last time your kids saw you boldly standing up and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, but Jesus. When's the last time they've seen that? See, that's our responsibility. But what are we showing them? How are we leading them? Where's your checkbook money being spent towards? What are the endless hours of every day being used for? Are you preparing them for what's to come? You see, I think the goal of marriage is making disciples. (laughs) That's it. Like, you don't think somehow... That because you get married, that the commandment to go you therefore makes disciples is like thrown to the side. Do you like, oh, phew, now that we're married, we don't have to make disciples anymore. No, now you're two together as one. You got your help made. You're stronger. Two become one. It's like, ooh, dynamic duo, baby. Watch out, world. Now you're together collectively chasing down those people who don't know Christ. And together you can both walk to the gates of hell with your squirt guns and say, you need Jesus. That's the mission. That's the goal. You see, when your goal in marriage is to make disciples, it changes how you live. And the only way that happens is if we do what Jesus said in in his word in Matthew 22, 37, 38, that we're supposed to love our God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. You see, the reason our marriages often feel adrift and a wife or husband doesn't feel loved it's because we try to substitute Jesus for something else. Let, let me explain. It's worth repeating this. 
You want, to feel, you want love in your marriage? You, you want to feel secure in your marriage? Let, let, me, let me just show you. Very simple explanation. Many have seen it before. In, in this case, let's just put Jim and Ann. And let's put God at the top. As I pursue Christ, my desire is to pursue God and to become a Godfather and become more like him and to love him with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind. If I keep pursuing God and I keep loving God with all my heart, all my soul, but suppose, which isn't the case, suppose my wife Ann doesn't. She doesn't have a desire to chase after God. The distance between my wife and me never changes because I'm not pursuing, or she's not pursuing Christ. And so even though I'm chasing after him, there still fills this large gap between us because she's not chasing after God. Suppose Ann goes and says, you know what? I'm going to chase after Jesus. I'm going to chase after Jesus. I'm going to chase after Jesus. But I decide not to. The same is true there. She continues to chase after God. The distance doesn't close. We don't feel this unity. We don't feel this harmony. But guess what happens when both? Look what happens. She chases, I chases. Look what happens. The more you pursue God, the more you keep Jesus at the center, guess what happens? You feel closer together. That's the picture. That's why we're supposed to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and all of our minds. But that's not always the case. Let me also say it this way. The gap between our love for God and our spouses should be massive. No close seconds. I mean that with all my heart. There shouldn't be like somehow you say, well, my love for my wife is a close second to how I love God. No, 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 no. The gap between us loving God and us loving our spouse should be massive. Let let me try to draw that. We have this list that we we, kind of, which are good things, by the way. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love family. I'm going to love friends. I'm going to love the world. I'm going to love possessions. And so we feel good that somehow we put possessions down at the bottom. And we think, you know what? These are the things I'm called to love. And somehow we think we're supposed to love all these things just as much as we love God. The truth of the matter is we should love God and then we should love everything else. The gap between that should be massive. There's no close seconds. God should be loved above everything. But is that the case? How much do you love your family? How much are you investing here in substituting? Is your family going to die one day and say, boy, my daddy loved me, but he didn't love God? Or are your kids going to leave the house one day at 18, 20 years old, whenever they leave and They're going to love their parents, but they don't love Jesus. It should be massive. There's no one like our God. There's no one that can be loved like our God should be loved. No one deserves that love. We are to worship God and not our marriages. Are the things you are doing for your wife or husband being done to get him to love you or to love God more? See, people need to see Christ in you as you love your spouse. I really believe this too. We are God's plan to make it believable that God is a good, loving, and true God and displaying God to the world is the purpose of the church and it's also the purpose of marriage. I often wonder where the willingness to forgo a feeling of happiness in our marriages for the sake of God's glory 
and forgetting that there is something so much more important than this temporary thing called earth. See, I believe this, that we should create children and, and, and mentor our children and discipline our children and help them grow in Christ and our wives in Christ so that they are living out the faith that God intended them to live out. My wife told me this last week after Dad Fest, and praise God for the way that God moved last week. You served, you gave, you prayed, you sacrificed, you invited, and you saw many people, men come to Christ. My wife told me this. She said, Jim, when you were up there preaching, she said, I was watching you preach, and I saw, watch you do what you were made to do. She says, oh, you were attractive. (laughs) (laughs) But listen, why? Because I was living on mission. I was doing what God had called me to do. I should be attractive. We should be husbands that are living on mission, and our wives say, oh, I love the way you love God. I don't know if you saw last week, but at the end, I asked, asked the wives to come up and the children to come up if they were there to stand with the pastors on stage. And part of that, I just wanted my wife to be with me. I wanted to share in the moment of what God had done because she's my helpmate. And together we're one. And I wanted to celebrate. And she was clean in the back. And, I, and she says, Jim, I was clean. I said, I know, I saw you. She was, she, she was clean in the back. But I don't know if you didn't see this, but here's what I saw. And when I asked the wives to come forward, my wife sprinted down the middle. She came running. And she says, Jim, I just wanted to be with you. <laughs> when we begin to realize that our marriages are designed to make disciples, it shapes the way we do life together, and it takes away the petty arguments that want to surface over stupid stuff. See, there's more at stake in your marriage than just your marriage. It's the beauty of the gospel is at stake. Anyone watching my wife joyfully serve the Lord will see. When I see her, oh, baby, when I see her meeting with other women and trying to show them in a biblical way to love and honor and submit to their husbands, when I see her meeting with people, the least of these, and when I see her and my daughter and my children weep over the least of these, when I watch my wife intercede, when I know that my wife went down two weeks before back baseball season when my son went to college because she knew he was playing baseball on a baseball scholarship, and she went down two weeks before the season started with one of her friends, Lisa, and they prayer walked around that diamond, and they said, we want this place to be a place where the glory of God, when I heard she did that, it's attractive. When I see my wife's passion for other women to run after Jesus, I am her greatest supporter. See, my hope is this, that when I pass, and I will one day, that my children and my wife, if I go before she does, said, Jim set me up to be a radiant bride before Jesus. In fact, I look forward to the day in heaven when I see my family standing before God. I'm going to shout, I told you. (laughs) I told you so. It's good. I told you it was worth it. I told you it was worth sacrificing. I told you. Wasn't I right? (laughs) I can't wait to shout, it was worth it. When we live this way, 
We raise children who live on mission too. Far too many parents raise kids who love them but don't love Jesus because they're not on mission. And they're just letting their children chase down the wants and needs of this temporary world. Let me ask you a question, fathers. Do you put the same effort and money into them becoming a sold-out follower of Christ as you do an athlete, a musician, a 4-H person, an artist? I want my kids to love Jesus far more than they love basketball, baseball, football, and cross-country and video games. You will never improve your marriage until you are secure with God and living on mission. Practical illustration. I'm a father who's been given this beautiful family that God is saying, I want you to set your family up to stand before Jesus Christ. That's your responsibility for your wife. That's your responsibility for your, for your children. And so I'm going to make decisions that maybe they might not like, and Anne's going to make decisions. To collectively together, we're going to make decisions that they might not like. I hear often, like, well, my kid doesn't come to worship service on Sundays, but we come because he's tired on Sunday morning. He's had a hard week. And I want to say, well, tell him to stop playing video games till 2 in the morning on Saturday night. Oh, my, my, my son doesn't want to be part of the youth group and, and go out on mission and be part of this gathering of their own peers that will sharpen and love and that they can pour into. They might find someone there that they can be on mission with. That he doesn't like youth group. He's kind of a backward kind of kid and he's kind of shy. Listen, if your son or daughter came to you and says, you know, I don't feel like going to school today. I'm tired. And, you know, I'm kind of scared of the the class. Are you going to say, what are you going to say to them? You're going to say, yeah, just stay home. No, you're going to say, go to school and be instructed in how to be a better person. And so the same as this, if they're asking you, as a father and a husband, you're saying this. You're saying, no, you're going to worship God as long as you're under my house because you need to know what a Christ follower looks like and you need to be on mission. You're coming with us on Sunday and you're worshiping, whether you like it or not. Because this is where we gather to lift up our God. You're not going to let them take off school. You're not going to let them say, and when they go get a job, you know, you stay home today. You've been up all night playing video games. I know you're tired. The boss will understand. The boss, what about Jesus Christ, the hope of glory? There's a lot of books out there on marriage. Ten steps, how to be a better father, how to, be a, how to have a happier marriage. And most of those are self-serving interests. You know what happens? We become high-maintenance women and high-maintenance men. Serve me, serve me. You didn't do this for me. I wanted that. Whoa, that husband did that. And that, that, that wife did that. And oh, I've always wanted that. And, and how come you weren't here at this time? It's like somehow, if you don't keep serving me, then I'm not going to be okay. Listen, this is temporary. So let me close by asking you a few questions. Husbands, if your wife passed away today, it would be very hard for me. Have you prepared her to be a radiant bride and she will hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant in front of the living God? Parents, are you preparing your children to win in front of Jesus or are they winning on the baseball diamond and volleyball court instead? Wives, are your interests and needs placed above God's call for mission on your marriage and you're holding back because it's sacrificing your time? 
Singles, is your life about making disciples? If so, who is the last person you led to Christ and who are you pursuing right now? Listen, some magical formula is not going to take place when you get married that all of a sudden you're going to be on mission to making disciples. He wants you making disciples right now. Anyone, are you spending more time on the last 10 years of preparation than you are the millions to come? Everyone that breathes and calls themselves Christ followers. When you stand before God one day, will you hear, well done. I believe that the world needs to see marriages where the hope of glory of Jesus Christ is elevated and he is the center and above all things. And there's unity and harmony because the wife the husband and the children are chasing after Jesus Christ. And when the world sees that, they will want that because they've never seen anything like that. God, help us today. God, I pray that husbands would prepare their brides. I pray that we reevaluate our decisions. I pray that we would become missional. I pray that we will begin to prepare our children and our families and our wives for the millions of years to come instead of helping them become better baseball players. I pray, God, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage, that you would compel, that you would spur, that you would provoke, that you would prompt us every single day of our lives to be on mission so that you get greater glory. We love you, God. We're grateful that you even give us a chance to live in such a time as this. Help us not to waste our mission. In Jesus' name, amen.